Unthinkable is an independent podcast supported by listeners like you and our sponsor, Riverside. Riverside is the easiest way to record high-quality, studio-grade audio and video right from your browser. It's like running your own studio in the cloud. It's what I use for this show and all of my client shows, too. Other organizations that use Riverside include TED. They use Riverside to record TED Talks remotely. Guy Raz and How I Built This, Freakonomics, and Sweetfish Media, the largest producers of B2B podcasts in the world. They all use Riverside. The thing is, it's built so beautifully and so simply that as an independent creator, even if I'd never created a show before, I could walk right in and it feels incredibly stress-free and intuitive. You can record your first 60 minutes for free and start creating a show like a pro. Visit riverside.fm to learn more. Hey, it's Jay. So my mom and I have a decades-old running joke. With a smile on her face, she'll accuse me of having an ego. And I'll smile back and I'll say, I don't have an ego. I just love how awesome I am. In our line of work, ego is a tricky thing. It can be a double-edged sword. It can giveth and taketh, and causeth many of us to strike a delicate balance in our work. On the one hand, We need a little useful ego to push ahead, a certain type of confidence to say, you know what, my ideas and the way I see the world can actually turn into something that others would like to experience. So yeah, I'll publish this thing and they'll like it or benefit from it. As the late great Anthony Bourdain once said, to think they'll pick up that book or watch past the commercial break, this is not reasonable thinking. Author A.J. Jacobs often refers to what he considers an entrepreneur's or really any creator's best tool. He writes, It's one of the greatest inventions in human history, right up there with the wheel, the steam engine, and the waffle maker. I'm talking about self-delusion. He continues, As an author, I rely on self-delusion as much as I rely on my laptop, Wi-Fi access, or excessive caffeine. End quote. There is a certain unavoidable ego driving this creative work that we do. Do we do it for others? Yes, definitely. To make things better in the world? Totally. But do we also do this work selfishly, creating things we enjoy the way we'd enjoy them? Don't we create the things we wish existed in the world? Isn't this work inherently driven by and pressed through our own sense of self, our voices, our perspectives, our opinions brought to the world by our skills? Abso-freaking-lutely. The ego part is unavoidable. Now, like A.J. Jacobs, I'm not saying let your ego run wild. We see what happens to people when that happens to them. They're all over social media. Egos unleashed. But these unleashed egos, often subtly and not so subtly, influence us. Because look, do I wish more people knew about my work? Yeah, of course. Do I think it ultimately matters to my business? In a small way, but not as much as my ego thinks I need a bigger audience. But it's hard to fight it, isn't it? Those unleashed egos that sure we dislike or don't want to be like, they seem to have massive audiences and optionality in what they do with their careers. So sometimes they cause us to trip off the path that we've chosen for ourselves and to play their game, to dilute what we do into becoming a distant echo of the work produced by those out-of-control egomaniacs. Back to A.J. Jacobs for just a second. He definitely believes in the power of useful self-delusion, which is the phrase he uses in his TED Talks and his writing. But he also warns us against what I'll call unchecked self-delusion. In 2016, in a Medium article, he wrote, One big caveat, don't get too carried away with the self-delusion. You need a mix of self-delusion and realism. 
the best companies have a blend of irrationally exuberant leaders balanced by the handringers. I try to find this blend in myself. Mornings are for realism, afternoons for undeserved optimism. End quote. So no, I'm not sitting here saying give in to the full extent of your ego like so many insufferable business bros seem to do. Don't let your ego out of the cage, but, you know, let it extend its arm through the bars and paw at the world a little bit. Says AJ Jacobs, despite his multiple New York Times bestselling books, his viral TED Talks, and his seemingly illustrious career as a writer, he says he struggles almost daily. And in those moments, his solution was, quote, deception. I tricked my brain. I'd force myself to act in an optimistic way. I'd compel myself to email medical experts and request interviews. I'd coerce myself to call my publisher with elaborate plans for the book launch. He goes on to say, After a couple of hours, it worked. My mind would catch up with my actions. I would start to feel optimistic. It's astounding how much the outer can affect the inner, how much behavior can affect your thoughts. End quote. A person that A.J. Jacobs likes to quote, Millard Fuller, the founder of Habitat for Humanity. Fuller famously said, it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. We all need just a tiny little dose of that confidence. Rather than gather up all the answers to justify acting, we can act to find our answers. The best way to find confidence to create is to create. Say what you will about all the business bros and the think boys and the egomaniacs out there, but they don't sit around wondering, is my voice worth hearing? Do I deserve to be heard? No, they put their head down and forge ahead. Dunning-Kruger effect be damned. I am so sick of that noise. I feel the urge to say to you, to others like us, let's fight fire with fire. But really, we need to bring a new kind of light to the fight. That is why I'm so focused on understanding resonance on this show and in my newsletter. That is why I think we should let our egos just paw at the world just a little bit so we get some useful self-delusion, just the right amount so we don't give up. And that is why today's story is so damn inspiring to me. It's from a writer and entrepreneur with an audacious mission driving the organization he now leads. That mission? Increase the signal of the internet. They're here to fight back against all the hollow noise, to develop important ideas from unique voices crafted into writing that's meant to resonate deeper as the internet trends shallow. I know this story will give you confidence, perspective, and the urge to create more meaningful work. My advice? Follow that urge with the utmost confidence. Embrace that doing so doesn't mean you have an ego. You just love how awesome you are. It's crucial, it's inspiring, it's one of the stories that speaks most to the very core of my soul as a writer and creator and a marketer and a person who just can't stand all the hucksters and spammers and bait and switchers polluting the internet and people's minds. Uh, uh, Where was I? All right. Keep keep it going. It's unthinkable, exploring why work resonates and how ours can too. I'm an extremely fired up Jay Akunzo. I talked to Stu Fortier, one of the co-founders of a company called Foster. 
Foster is a community of writers who write together. They're reimagining a writer's workflow, serving a very specific niche of writers, people who might consider writing to be their strong number two. They're not necessarily authors or full-time writers or journalists. They might have a job in-house in engineering or marketing, or maybe they're entrepreneurs or solo creators like me, but writing is a big driver of their ideas, their passions, and sometimes their businesses. They run an online community, which is application only, and they're building software to help writers improve their ideas, get feedback on their edits, and ship better work. As they say on their homepage, produce writing that resonates. When I first spoke to Stu, I just wanted to give you, the listener, a sense for what Stu himself writes about. So in the last few months alone, I've seen you write about building a thriving personal brand online, but without becoming disingenuous, working hard and striving in your career, but without becoming a meatheaded hustle bro, as you said, uh, building an audience and a community based on affinity, not awareness. So in other words, a, a valuable group, not just a big list of people. And you also talked about all of this stuff on the internet, which uh, is the least nuanced place on earth ever invented. So I guess my first question is less a question, more of an attack. How dare you bring nuance to an absolutist fight? <laughs> well, you uh, beautifully captured the eternal struggle that, well, at least some of us feel. I'm going to go against my hustle bro culture. Bezos said it best when he said the internet or social media is a nuance destroying machine. The internet is filled with other people who are creating you'll never quite be certain of what you create, what will resonate most. And so really your mission is to produce and share as much as you possibly can. And, you know, some percentage of those things will stick and some percentage of those things will, you know, catapult you to success. And I think like pragmatically speaking, that's probably roughly correct. But the unintended consequence is that if everyone is just posting every half-baked thought onto the internet, there is going to be an unbelievable amount of noise. And if you're the person sharing every half-baked thought, I think very quickly it just turns folks off and like people are looking for signal throughout this noise. So anyways, my counter narrative is just like, there's a surplus of, of content. You know, there's this true lack of like depth and insight and, you know, everyone has the chance to do that, but it requires being your own editor and like having real judgment of what we're sharing. So the first question has to become, why does the internet need stronger signal? Or the inverse, why is it so full of noise that all just sounds the same? I think there's a few forces at play. One is this mimetic desire and drive we all have, which is like, I see something working for somebody else. Oh my God, I see that same thing working for a second person. You see that repeated enough, you are naturally going to feel this like visceral draw towards that thing. So we are just like mimetic creatures and it's very easy to get off target. And like, to be clear, I've done this plenty of times myself, like speaking from personal experience. Same. Obviously, at some point, we all need people to sift through the noise. We want folks to share interesting stories. But I think the thing that is like fundamentally missing and to me, the big like fundamental value unlock of like how the Internet is going to get more interesting is like, yeah, but what's your perspective on this? What is the thing that you uniquely know? I just fundamentally believe every single person has that thing. Some folks are going to be more inclined to want to share it. How do we get people, less people kind of being purely curators or remixers or repackagers into just the insightful people they already are, but just need to find a way to express? How did you go from 
a University of Virginia econ and religious studies major to then a CTO and co-founder of a startup. Halfway through school, I knew that uh, you know money was you know relatively tight growing up. I knew I wanted to start my own business or get into a better financial situation. I figured that the best way of doing that was through entrepreneurship. And so halfway through school, I'd saved up like 500 bucks from a really bad, you know, summer busboy job. And I was back at school and I had this idea for like a website I wanted to build. Typical like really bad college student idea. It was like figuring out what the drink specials are at the local bars. Uh, I had no idea how to build uh, or write code or actually create a technology product. So I went on Reddit. Reddit has a hiring board like subreddit for hire. Hired a dude who offered to build the whole thing for me with the caveat that I had to pay up front. So foolishly, I sent him the money. And literally within about like five minutes, he deletes his account and disappears off the face of the earth. Oh, God. So at that point, I was like, okay, clearly I'm not going to be able to hire my way out of this. I now have no money, but I do have a little bit of time. So why don't I start to like actually just see if I can build this thing on my own and teach myself? I was watching like fractured English uh, YouTube tutorials on how to build iPhone apps that were uploaded by some university somewhere. And like the TA had uploaded a few lectures and I started to just piece together this basic knowledge of how to write code and spent like a year doing that in all of my spare time. And so anyways, by the time I left school, a friend of mine had this idea for an app and was like, Hey, I'm trying to build this thing. I think I'm gonna like hire someone in India to build it. And I was like, no, my friend, I will build this for you. I had a full-time job lined up, but if this thing really works, um, I'll come with you and we'll like build this company. By the time I'd spent, you know, a year and a half or something really going deep on writing code, I was actually in a place to build this app, get it off the ground. We got it funded and, you know, had its moment in the sun. It became like a relatively successful uh, startup right out of school. The business was called Mass Root, and it was a community-powered business. The niche was totally crazy, or at least crazier back then. It was a semi-anonymous, so you could use your real identity if you want to. You could use a pseudonym if you didn't. For states in the U.S. where cannabis had been legalized, where you could talk about and rate and review cannabis products. The issue at the time was that millions of people in America were about to like have legal weed in their state, and were like, what are these products? What do they actually do? Are they safe? So basically, we built a place where you could actually like talk and rate and review those products. Okay, back to the University of Virginia. Yeah, so one of the things about the University of Virginia where I went is there is a very affluent student body. From my perspective, coming from a kind of cheap beach town, everyone there just seemed to kind of understand the game. They knew to apply to like the commerce school. They got a head start on everything. They'd clearly just like known how to play the college game long before they got there. And when I showed up, I just didn't. I just did not feel like I had a great grounding and like how this whole thing worked. And it just took me quite a while to like figure this thing out. And I had to put in a lot of extra effort to do that. And so halfway through school, when I started to teach myself programming, it's kind of this like side pursuit that I thought would help accelerate my ability to like start a business. I had spent something like four or five months laboring away trying to learn how to build a freaking iPhone app. I'd finally finished this very basic version of this first app that I built from end to end that kind of pushed and tested my knowledge. And I started showing it to people. So I started showing it to friends, most of whom were you know, kind of indifferent, but supportive. But one of whom, his first reaction was just like unconstrained laughter. He like, it was clear to him. He just didn't understand like why I would spend the time to teach myself coding on top of my existing coursework, why I would build this, you know, clearly trivial, silly app. And that moment 
really just felt like it revealed what I had kind of already suspected. This guy's on the path. He's going to fall into, he already had a great internship last summer. He's going to fall into a very well-paid job right after this. Family's very well off. I don't feel that I'm on the path. In fact, I'm still trying to figure out how this whole game works. Learning how to code is this key part of me carving my own way and trying to gain every edge I can to compete or like find my, my way into the game. So what is now called Foster, your current business, had a different name when you started it, Compound or Compound Writing. Where did Compound begin? Yeah, it really began, you know, after college, spending a few years in the tech industry, you know, launching, I launched a couple of tech startups in addition to the first one that we mentioned right after school. And the second startup that I went pretty deep into was in the kind of artificial intelligence machine learning space. And it had been a space I had like spent maybe a year learning about just on on nights and weekends. And it just utterly amazed me what was going on in that space. You know, machine learning and AI, whatever you want to call it, uh, was clearly at this tipping point where truly amazing things were like finally happening. And that was such a eye-opening, like jarring realization that I just wanted to share with more people. I was like, you know, computers are coming. <laughs> and so I started to write about that on a blog that literally no one read for like two years or something, just all sorts of things I was thinking about, but really with the intent of like sharing all that I'm learning, because I actually think I'm kind of at the forefront of a couple things that most of my friends and family certainly don't know about. Probably lifetime readers on that is like a thousand people like ever, half of whom are probably just bots. And kind of around early 2020, late 2019, early 2020, my previous co-founder in the first startup had come to me saying like, all these really interesting things going on with niche online communities. And he'd been doing a lot of like community building in New York and was like, yeah, I just really want to start something in like a niche community space, but I don't quite know like what it is. And I was like, dude, well, I've been writing for a while. I don't know if there's an opportunity for a writer's group. Cause I, I actually had a very negative connotation when I thought of writer's group. I think of like 10 people who have never sold a screenplay, like telling each other how to sell screenplays. <laughs> but he was like, yeah, that might actually be like kind of interesting. And so we just kind of just riffed on it for maybe like a few weeks after that conversation. And I basically came to him, we just need to pick why writers would get together. What would be like the core thing that would make a community for writers kind of sensible? As I thought about it, you know, the one big thing I'm struggling with every week when I publish something is, is this any good? I just don't have a big enough audience to really know what I'm writing is actually resonating or is actually valuable. Like it'd be really helpful to be surrounded by peers who could give me input on the work and give me their frank and honest reactions of how my work is being received. So that was kind of the genesis of what became Foster uh, and why Foster is like at its very core, a place to collaboratively edit and write. Given the founding team, the initial traction and the big ambitious mission, Foster was able to raise $3 million in a seed round backed by Y Combinator. And the coolest thing about all this, I think, is they're also backed by a bunch of great angel investors who are writers. In fact, Stu made it a point to make room and leave room in the round, in the fundraise, for people who were both angel investors and had a consistent writing practice. And as someone who has had a consistent writing practice for years most of which you, my dear listener friend, have no idea exists and still exists on the internet. As someone who's always had a writing practice on the side of my day job, 
I just couldn't help but appreciate what Stu did. The whole point of the internet is like, it's networking all human beings together. Like, you know, in theory, we're technically very connected. So like, why are more writers talking to each other? There's so many great creative projects that are the function of collaboration. In writing, there's this, I think like, understandable meme of the lone writer. Like when we think of a writer, we think of Walden Pond or whatever, where you just go out and like, you know, watch the ducks for long enough and all of a sudden life reveals its secrets to you. And like, I think that's total bullshit. I think you need those moments, but your one tiny brain in this hugely complex universe and world, chances are other people's perspectives are going to help augment your own. And you actually get kind of a great advantage from our perspective by inviting the perspective and input of other people and just being inspired and open to hearing things from other people's perspectives. Our belief is like, if you want to do original work or just more interesting work, counterintuitively, you actually need to spend a little bit more time with other people and around other folks who help push your thinking and help expand your perspective. You mentioned that there's like this, that myth or, you know, this idea anyway of the rogue independent writer and, you know, it is kind of isolating and you just embrace it or, or even feel a sense of pride in it. Um, I have written a side blog since before I graduated college. So this started back in probably 2006. I've always had a blog just for me on the side. And honestly, like most of that, 95% of that, 12 people read. You know, it's like my mom, literally this happened. I wrote a blog called Cranky Yankees Fan because I lived in Boston. I still live in Boston as a New York Yankees fan. So I talked about the rivalry between the Boston Red Sox and the Yankees fan. My mom is a Yankees fan. She's a preschool teacher. And so she sees all these parents throughout the day. And one other parent is also a Yankees fan. So she told her about my blog and she became a fan. And when I sunset Cranky Yankee Fan, which you can still find on online, by the way, uh, she was sad, this friend of my mom's, because it was like, oh, that's the one. <laughs> my, I lost my reader, singular, my reader. But I, you know, I had Cranky Yankee Fan, All-Star Blog before that where I wrote about sports. I had jayakunzo.com, which I, I left and then brought back. And that is my current focus right now. I had a Tumblr. I had something very meta where I wrote about sports media. Um, so I blogged about sports blogging on a blog called Blog Don't Lie, which is a riff on the old Rashid Wallace quote from the NBA, Ball Don't Lie. So NBA fans will get a kick out of that. Everyone else is like, please keep talking, Jay. I don't get it. Uh, but so I had all these different permutations of different blogs, a lot in sports media and a lot in sort of the business world and marketing. And the entire time I was doing this, I did feel very alone. It felt very beneficial to my career in other ways. But at no point did I feel like I had any kind of peers or collaborators. You know, I had almost no readers. Again, still very worth it, but the piece that was just so hard to swallow was just how isolated I felt as a writer specifically. It is not something I felt this like pride in, despite the narrative of, you know, the rogue isolated writer with their, you know, maybe the Hemingway-esque idea. So I just, I dislike that myth, and I think it actually ruins a lot of chances for writers to become better. It's brutal when it's just your grandma who reads it, and it's even harder when she unsubscribes. <laughs> This is the part of the episode where I say, one time I tweeted, and try not to cringe. So one time I tweeted, <laughs> I, I tweeted that there's really no such thing as good writers. There's just good editors. And of course, who jumped down my throat with tons of vitriol, but 
every writer who follows me and every writer who the algorithm suggested should comment on that tweet. Thanks, Twitter. Nothing like the argument we're having today. But the point I was trying to make, if poorly, was that there's really no such thing as good writing. There's just good rewriting. Whether that comes from someone with the title of writer or journalist or columnist or editor, it doesn't matter. What I'm saying is the path to great work, to something that resonates deeply, both with you as the creator and your audience, it starts with messy, awful drafting. The idea needs to be sharpened. The draft needs to be smoothed out. You have to do something that, at least those of us in podcast production talk about all the time, kill your darlings. I love this metaphor. Yeah, but it doesn't fit the thesis. This paragraph. Yeah, but it's overwritten. And when you create things, especially if the stakes are high, but even if they're not, you're just so close to them that it's really difficult to see the forest for the trees. And so you need some people to step back and look at that forest. Well, what is it you're trying to say here? What is the actual idea or through line? What are you trying to accomplish? Is this articulated in the way that is as unique to you as possible without losing the audience and their need to hear things in ways that they can grasp too? And then you, of course, need people to zoom in to the trees and examine the branches and the leaves and all the stuff you put into the paragraphs, the sentences, the wording of things. What Foster is trying to do is harness the power of community to accelerate or even make possible those kinds of improvements to help you ship work based on iterative improvements, which is the nature of the work. But so often when you're rogue, as I've been for lots and lots of my writing, what you're doing is relying on your audience to help you with that. I'm going to ship something, see if it sticks and to what degree and inform the next something I ship with that first something. And I still think this is the path to improvement. You make a thing, then you make another thing and another and on and on you go, maintaining the intention to do something you love, but knowing that each time you're just a little bit off and you have to improve the next time. Stu and his team and his community understand the power of iterative improvement. Given the fact that a community is so integral to the improvement of each writer in Foster, of course, the people in that community have to matter. It can't just be $10 a month for any old member to join no matter what. There must be some kind of vetting process to ensure every single writer gets better quickly. So I asked him to explain, how do you even get into Foster to begin with? If you're not already writing, we cannot help you. Uh, If you don't already have this blessing or curse, however you want to describe it, to sit down and write, then there is nothing we can do from our perspective to get you there. We now have a process where community members, other folks in the community can actually vote you in. So now it's really this fun, self-sustaining thing where you get kind of voted in, people take a look at your writing and they say, this person's really interesting. And before you can do anything, before you can access like the Discord or like access our app, you have to share a draft and you have to share a piece of work that is in progress. When you get accepted, that thing gets dropped like right into our main kind of like feed of drafts. We have an app and boom, your work is now in front of the entire community. From there, anyone in the community can kind of jump in and give you feedback on your work. And basically like a handful of other writers will, this is our, our greeting which ritual really, but it's our core ritual as a community, uh, will come in and start giving you feedback on your writing. So like typically within 48 hours of joining Foster, you are sitting there with a Google Doc with like 20 very thoughtful suggestions from maybe like three to five writers who you've never met. How do you ensure a healthy and diverse group of people enter Foster if you're relying on the existing group to vet newcomers, you know, in part? So how do you ensure that there's healthy diversity in the group? 
the most important thing to know about building a diverse community and really, and, and we define diversity in kind of the socioeconomic sense or in the, in kind of every demographical sense we can. I think there's always this really comfortable lie, which is really, we just value intellectual diversity. A foster member, Jason Shen, tweeted about this in the missing piece behind intellectual diversity is that our lived experience has a massive impact on how we think. So we do like try to make a priority. We prioritize recruiting like women, folks of color. We didn't do that when we first started and the result was so predictable. It was just first wave of members was largely men, largely white men. That makes total sense because that's my demographic. Those are a lot of like my readers. I was the one promoting Foster, but this thing doesn't just like work itself out. So we do, we make a pretty large effort behind the scenes to actually kind of measure and make sure our wait list is attracting like a diverse set of folks. So we just said straight up, we are not going to admit the next wave of new members. At least 30 to 35% of the wait list has to be women. Just doing that, it took us a few months of like, doing this consistently, it is the success compounds. Like if you just crack and get enough momentum. So like what this does is, okay, if we're not going to let anyone into, we get 35% women. Guess what? I'm going to start hosting way more women on the podcast because their audience has more women in it. It forced us into these like micro changes that get reflected back in the wait list. And when there are more women as a part of it, more of them are going out and advocating for foster. Hey, just join this awesome community. So now it's a 50%. That's our minimum quota uh, before we let new folks in. That's how many folks have to be on the wait list. And it just compounds. That's, I think, the really cool thing if you choose to do it. So now that you have a healthy and diverse group of people, how do you ensure that their feedback is actually productive? Because I think it'd be easy just to rely on the fact that, you know, oh, they're, they're writers. They've done this before. Or they're really generous, well-meaning people. But I think there's a big big leap or big chasm between I'm a good writer or I'm a good person even, and I know how to give good productive feedback. We have a an amazing editorial advisor. Her name is Alyssa Doucette. She runs a firm called Craft Your Content. She has like the all-star team of like editors on the internet on her team. It's like they're incredible. So we partnered up with her to help us come up with a lot of resourcing and content and even onboarding material for new members that helps them really understand how to give constructive input, what that actually looks like. We try to always make it very easy to memorize. You're simply there to kind of open up new possibilities for them. And the kind of key thing is that you're on their team and you are supporting them. You're not an adversary. There's no right way to do what they're doing. They're never quite wrong. You're just showing them new possibilities. So I think that notion of like, all right, when I'm editing, I'm the therapist. I'm on their team and I'm just going to ask questions and kind of show them new possibilities is like one of these little micro frameworks that clicks for people. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. My, mine's a little bit more... Um not rigid, but it's sort of like a visual concept you can hold in your brain or even name the concept. So it's ABC, articulate because consider. So so this gets out of the subjective nature of editing, which is it's still pretty subjective, but you know, because you're never going to remove the humanity of it. You're never going to get the A plus on the essay in college. The same idea applies to professional writing or side project writing. You can always tweak it, right? So let's acknowledge that first. But now how do we get out of this like purely subjective, almost combative form of feedback where it's like your idea versus my idea or your idea equals your self-worth. So if I comment on it, it's, it's kind of like a veiled sense of attack. Um, so I think you get closer to objectivity with this idea of ABC, articulate because consider. So first, articulate something objective. And you can both agree to the fact that it's there. So, hey, I noticed in the first few paragraphs, you cite this person 12 times, right? 
or you use the word six times or whatever. That's a very simple example of something you and I both agree objectively I witnessed. It's not subjective. So, hey, I noticed this. So articulate something objective. That's the A in ABC. And then tell them why. Why are you saying that? Because why? Um, Well, it made me feel like this or it made me lose sight of the why behind all this or you know now it's like i'm concerned about something or i felt this way there's a reason you brought up what you have observed so i observed something i'm articulating it because this reason and then c is consider so now that you have seen something and said why you brought it up consider these questions to improve like have you considered this or what about that what if you tried x or consider these solutions or techniques to get better and so now you give them possibilities and you're kind of like a co-founder of their idea or of their piece uh, in a way that feels very collaborative and useful like you're marching towards the same aim versus you versus them you know the, the whole subjective combative thing from before so that's abc articulate because consider that's exactly it. I think the co-founder language is so great. I think from the writer's perspective, you know, what's the feedback you want to receive? It's that thing where, oh my God, they they clearly know what I'm trying to say and they are yes-anding me and showing me this whole new world of what could be. I feel very seen. I feel very understood. That's an awesome feeling as a writer. It feels very validating um, and it feels very like energizing. thousand pieces of writing go through the workflow. So these are a thousand ideas and drafts that people have shared and collaborated on. I need to figure out what the latest number is. It's it's certainly much higher. Hundreds of writers that are actively using the platform. So that's another kind of stat we use. There's hundreds of, of yep. active writers in the community. My perception of Foster and the language I see in the website or from readers who excitedly tweet about Foster, uh, certainly I get this from knowing you digitally and now through this conversation you seem to be creating passionate community members. And, you know, also in startup parlance, that means you have product market fit without seemingly succumbing to what I would assume is the temptation of your marketing, which might might be, you know, uh, for example, I expect you to rewrite your homepage, Stu, to promise people that if you write with Foster, you'll increase your Twitter reach or your revenue you know, 10x in 10 months, that kind of language. It doesn't seem like you're playing into that kind of baser instinct or, you know, almost like hollow, transparently selfish kind of language. You don't promise that kind of stuff. You talk about helping people write better, which obviously I find profoundly refreshing. (laughs) And, uh, you know, to quote your website, you talk about turning promising ideas into timeless pieces of writing. That is not the result that most organizations looking to grow their user base would normally promise. They would resort to the other stuff. So why do you think that the way you've positioned Foster actually does appeal to the folks you'd like in your community? I think a lot of folks are waking up to the fact that every growth hack eventually stops working. And so they don't want to get too caught up in what is working today. And that often these incentives lead to this really kind of like polluted, for lack of a better word, 
internet and environment where we consume information. I think people are really sick of their first results on Google when they're even researching very important topics being obviously gamed by marketers. I think they're very sick of their Twitter feed being self-aggrandizing, exaggerated stories or there's some percentage of people at least who feel this and are just really turned off by it and want to get back to the fundamentals behind why they even like this in the first place. You know what? You actually just have to write great stuff for this to work. The algorithms are eventually going to get smart enough. Consumers are going to get smart enough that like at the end of the day, the best thing will win. It may not be winning always right now, but that is the kind of trend. And I think like that combination of forces people are waking up to and realize, I just want to do good work. I'm going to be doing it for a very long time. This is where things are headed. And like, this is the commitment that I want to make is to quality and resonance. The type of person that does have this like smug clarity or smugness or, you know, they're, they're what what was once maybe useful self-delusion to create and gain confidence has become all-consuming for them. They're just embodiments of ego on the internet. When I encounter these people, sometimes it's a thin veneer of that, and I, I can't quite place it, but something feels off. And then I I have friends or or peers that that love these people, and I'm like, what? Don't you don't you see what what they're doing? They don't give a shit about you. <laughs> They're so selfish. They're they're saying repurpose, rehash things. They're the, the shelf life for their use case in your life is profoundly short, and they're also so full of themselves. Like how how do you why do you like this? So you know that's putting putting that aside. The, the, sometimes the thin veneer is such that I can't quite place like what is off, but something feels off. You know the language they're using or the way they act, and then other times it's absolutely dripping from these people. But but then you see the engagement they get or the follower count or like I said, friends that I admire are like, look what this person t- tweeted, and it's amazing. And I'm like, maybe they have more opportunities in their careers, or maybe their audience does buoy their creative aspirations. And it just, you know, I start this cycle in my lower moments of questioning whether I should try to play in those, and then I run screaming away from it, right? But it's like, I can't figure out why. Why is that the case? Like, how do you make sense of those I don't want to say those types of people. I want to say that type of work. Why does that seem like it it resonates with so many people? When to me it's, you know, I feel like I feel like it's that it's that Will Ferrell meme from Zoolander. It's like I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Like what what how do you make sense of all that? Help me out here, Stu. I think one is there's a lot of new people online. So there's a ton of people who are now like on say Twitter for example. And I think it might be the case that a lot of those folks are relatively green to business. They haven't quite been playing the game super long and kind of like buy it. They don't, they don't necessarily see the veneer yet. You know, I'm definitely guilty of reading some of the morning habits of billionaires articles that like, (laughs) or the individual people who are acting like, like Forbes, you know, which I've heard others refer to as think boys, the (laughs) O I S. And I don't know who coined that term, but I want to buy that person or those people, all the drinks. It's exactly, it just nails it. It's this whole game of like... Puffery. Yeah, puffery. One tiny thing they've done that's being extrapolated to the reason they're successful. 
for me at least, enough time had to pass just to totally see the the BS. But what I've noticed is when I talk to people one on one, last week um, I had a bunch of different founders in YC reach out to me and say, "Hey, it seems like building an audience on Twitter is really important. Like, I'd love to talk about it and riff on how to do it well." Almost all of them, unprompted, said, "I want to build an audience on Twitter, but I don't want to become one of these like self-aggrandizing think boys or jerks." But I think the the thoughtful more contemplative folks who are probably the folks you want to work with anyways do see the game and like are turned off by it and like hopefully are trying to think of ways to be more genuine and aligned when they show up remember Stu started from a place of wanting to do work because he was interested in it because he liked writing and the way he approached it was to help others resonate. I mean, oh my gosh, could you find a more perfect story for this show? And so many of Stu's impulses seems to fly in the face of those egomaniacs, the think boys, the folks that have turned useful self-delusion into rampant, insufferable self-hype. And what I find the more I run this show and my newsletter, the more we search for stories about resonance and find people who believe in its power above all else, this service-mindedness that they bring to the work, this depth of connection and ideas despite what you see on the internet. The more I continue down this path with you, the more the tension between do I do it their way and try to pop and get famous or do I do it according to my values, that stops feeling like an inevitability to tip towards the hucksters and it starts feeling like a personal choice we can choose to build our businesses according to our values we can choose to understand yes i do feel disillusioned by it and even though people who i think are very smart are saying to wield these tools or use these techniques it doesn't sit well with me and i have to sleep at night i have to live my life I am going to die someday and I choose to spend my time and emotional energy a certain way. The path to better starts with a choice. And while that sounds nice and I hope inspiring, it doesn't have to be ephemeral. It can actually lead to concrete results. So you recently wrote, what's cooler than a big community? A high affinity one. You then shared seven ways that you've been trying to do that. In other words, build a high affinity community, build something that people feel such irrational bias towards, such an emotional connection with that, you know, it's not just about the totals. It's about the value of the relationship, certainly the two-way street, but also the value of your members to your business. And so I want to talk about each of the seven ways that you've been trying to to resonate deeper and create affinity among your members. Because I think it translates beyond just building a, you know, a password protected community group. So here we go. Number one, define a clear purpose. For us, this was squaring on this very specific notion that writers need collaborators and they need editing on their work. And so the core purpose of Foster is to help you find collaborators on your work so that you can tell better stories. So that was number one, define a clear purpose. Number two of seven, run a tight door. So one of the toughest things about building a community is that if you're building a community, you probably really like people. You probably want to build an inclusive community and you can, but your community is, is ultimately defined by who, who is not invited. So if you're building a community for marketers, probably doesn't make sense to invite in a software engineer. Like what would be the, the core utility for them? So running a tight door just means being super clear and sticking to who this thing is for. 
And so at Foster, what we've done is you cannot get in unless you've already published writing without us. Okay, so number one, define a clear purpose. Number two, run a tight door. Number three, high friction attracts high affinity. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so I think one way of thinking about churn in a community, and maybe just like generally, is were these just the wrong members to begin with? So I think in a community, sometimes if you have a very high churn, if it's a paid community or something, you have a very high churn or low engagement, it may be the case that it's just too easy to join your community. Anybody can click on a Discord link and join it. So when you raise the friction bar for us, that's you have to share a piece of writing that you're going to submit to the group. You cannot get into the community without doing that. That just self-selects. People drop off, but it self-selects for the most high affinity members uh, who really want to be a part of this thing. Okay, number four in the list, charge money early on. Yeah, so this is like everyone has their own journey with it, but I think you'd be surprised if you're clear with your purpose, if you run a tight door, if you've got a really clear intent with your community. If you're creating value, what's 30 bucks a month? I think you should offer scholarships and folks who can't, who, who legitimately cannot pay, you should be flexible with. But if your community can't deliver at least X dollars a month in value, you know, maybe it's not even worth building to begin with. So I just encourage folks like charging money is a great test of if you're delivering value and it creates this double benefit of like the person now paying is now more vested. They want to get their money's worth. They're going to show up a bit more often than if this was just a free thing they clicked into and like now they're in. Number five, I'm going to present it with a very, um, let's say characteristic disillusionment that I carry with me (laughs) from years in the business world and and then marketing more specifically. And I'm going to react to it with with a sarcasm that's that's very um, unbecoming. (laughs) So here we go. Okay, here we go. Number five, don't obsess over growth. What? (laughs) No, this is the exact skepticism that that this should be met with because I think it's a slippery slope and it certainly flies in the face of probably all the other advice out there. But early on with a community, I think it's like, the first group that met for Burning Man, I don't actually know their history, but I assume they were just on the same dimension. So I think early on, more important than just showing that you can grow this thing reliably is getting the foundation solid. Y Combinator did five years of like sub 20 company batches before they started to grow. So I think this is like the key to get the foundation solid for a community business because that becomes the product later on. But, you know, Stu, you, you mentioned before, you're building a business. You want to have an impact. You also want to create wealth for yourself and your family and, and your team. You've mentioned these things in our conversation here. Like there are some stakes to what you're doing that almost point directly with just a bold line that's been highlighted three times, like to you obsessing over growth. So is what you want and what you're building, are these things somehow actually antithetical? to this one pillar of high affinity communities. Don't obsess over growth. I love that question because I think that's what we asked ourselves and that's what the community asked when we raised money. But I think what's key is like the expectations we set with our investors and with our early community members, which is that we do think Foster can be big. We fundamentally believe there's a ton of people who whatever Substack market, you know, whatever Substack's market is, is our market. Anyone who's ever set up a Substack is eventually someone who, you know, who could be a fit for Foster. And so for us, we actually do think the overall possibility here is quite large. We think getting there as quickly as possible is very fraught and is very dangerous. So one of the first things that happened in our first 
kind of few weeks of Y Combinator was Michael Seibel, who runs Y Combinator's incubator program, sat us down. He was a big fan of ours and he pulled up a chart. We were talking about growth. We were trying to figure out how do we continue to grow like month over month and bring people in. And he just pulled up the chart of Y Combinator batch sizes and he zoomed in to years one through five. And it was, I never knew this, but it was trivially small. I mean, most years had like 10 or less companies or something like that. And he just said like, this was five years of Y Combinator. We just spent five years trying to crack how to actually do this well. And now we can take 300 companies in a single batch. There's just no rush for you guys. Like, I'm confident this thing can be big. I know you guys are too. Most important thing is like, what foundation are you laying right now? So there's a little bit of a paradox. Like, we do think Foster can be quite big, but we think like how we get there determines uh, if we're successful or not. Okay, so just quick quick recap as to where we came in the list. We're at number six here, but number one was define a clear purpose. Number two, run a tight door. Number three, high friction attracts high affinity. Number four, charge money early on. Number five, don't obsess over growth. <laughs> and number six, small behaviors self-replicate. Talk about that one. If you, as the leader of the group, as the founder of the group, are a jerk, that will start to self-replicate in the group. If you don't participate in your own community, why will other people? They're, they're, they're not even seeing any leadership. The people who built this thing aren't even getting value out of it. So my belief is that like those early members who join and folks who join, you kind of look around just to see like, how are people behaving in this group? What are the norms? What's the culture? And you specifically look at folks who are part of that core team building it. How are they interacting? What are they here for? And I think any of these tiny things you do uh, just self-replicates and people look and copy what you do. I still edit a ton of drafts and I think that trickles out and other people see that and they want to participate as well. And finally, number seven, avoid building a cult of personality. Interesting. This is funny because everyone's different and I'm sure there are some successful communities that truly have a cult-like, you know, singular or handful of leaders. For us though... The community is like defined by the value you get from other members. There's a bit of a paradox. Like we want to be seen doing the behaviors we want the group to replicate, but we also don't want to be dependent on. We want to get out of the way and help facilitate community members getting value from each other. So that's, that's how I think about like, don't become a cult personality. Don't make that the draw to the group. Make the draw to the group, the other people who are there, because that's what a real community is. In this era of obsessing over hyper growth, you know, reaches everything, the optics matters almost more than the reality for many people, or at least we've lost the script of, you know, what all this stuff is for the the metrics that we so pride ourselves in promoting or seeing the, you know, virality or total followers. There's this dichotomy, there's this tension I'm feeling between the way it's typically done, or what you're seeing taught, uh, or even encouraged implicitly by the hate by the behavior of others who are famous in a niche. Um, there's a tension between all of that and what most people seek out in the market and what I'm exploring or what we're exploring here on the show and in my newsletter. And I, I feel that tension acutely all the time, you know, and people will point to the fact, well, like, no, 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 like I need a bigger audience, Jay. Like I, it's nice to talk about resonance, but you have to resonate with people who, who you've reached. Right. So I, I need to focus on reach. I need to focus on top line growth and all these other things. Well, actually like, there's this tension. I can't ignore it. If I'm going to proceed thoughtfully on behalf of my audience, I need to acknowledge it. I need to bring it up. I need to to pressure test it. If I'm going to do things like write a book on resonance or coach people or, or whatever I end up doing with this IP. 
So for you, Stu, when I say resonance, what does that mean to you? I think resonance is like the spidey sense that my favorite artists, entrepreneurs, creators, musicians all seem to have this deep sense of understanding and of perspective that I see myself in and that I see my own lived experience in. To me, that's like what resonance is. And I think it, to me, it's inextricably in the age of the internet where distribution is like free and abundant. To me, it actually, it is inextricably linked to long-term growth and distribution and success in that certainly the creators I've stuck with over many, many years and writers that I still read, the podcasters I still listen to are the ones who just have that spidey sense there. They're the ones who published that podcast episode about is Web3 a scam or something? And I was just thinking about that. And they beautifully articulate and go a layer deeper on it than, than I was able to on my own. So when I think of residence, I think of like having that spidey sense and that understanding of like where your people are. Your mission. So my mission, you know, help help others make what matters most to their careers, their companies, and their communities. And right now, the how of it, that's the why. The how, I want to make residence more widely understood, more concrete. I want to give form and function to it so we can lean into that idea. Your mission is to help increase the signal of the web, or at least that's how you've explained it to me behind the scenes. Why do you as a person, as Stu, forgetting Foster, why do you care about that mission? I I probably at the end of the day have some deep, complex you know, combination of forces driving me that I'm totally blind to, like many of us are, some combination of biology, time and history, whatever, life experience. And it's actually very tough to wrap language around and like, you know, who actually knows what drives us. But I think the reason is I absolutely love being exposed to new ideas. I really just get a kick out of like discovering new interesting things. And so when I see just recycled or clearly unoriginal content, it's getting in my way of like discovering the depth and extra layers of life that I know are out there, but I haven't yet seen. Resonance, quality, originality. For that kind of work, we could all use a little useful self-delusion. Thanks for listening. This episode was written and edited by me, Jay Akunzo, with production support from Alana Nevins. If you had any thoughts or questions on this episode, this show overall, or any of my work, email me, jay at unthinkablemedia.com. I'm also at Jay Akunzo on Twitter. I write, create shows for brands, and coach creators and marketers, typically B2B creators and marketers, on how to resonate more deeply with their audiences so they can build their businesses and leave their legacies. As an independent creator doing all those things, I rely deeply on the support of listeners like you. To extend your support and get some new stories and ideas from me, consider subscribing to my newsletter. It's called Playing Favorites. Every other week, get one new idea for creating work that resonates. Because it's not about being the best, it's about being their favorite. Join thousands of subscribers from brands like the New York Times, the BBC, Adobe, Salesforce, Red Bull, and more, plus plenty of entrepreneurs, marketers, freelancers, and other independent creators who get these emails every other Friday from me. Visit jayaconzo.com to subscribe for free or check your show notes to learn more. 
I'm back next week with a brand new episode of the show. Until then, keep making what matters. See ya. Thank you to Riverside for sponsoring this episode. Here's my approach to tools that enable creativity. I don't want to think about them. I want to pick the best one under my budget and then never worry about them ever again. I just want my tools to work and work well. If I'm spending time wrestling with technology, I'm miserable. Creating a show like this, there's enough to occupy my time. And that is why I create this show on Riverside. I record each episode virtually with all the voices you hear, but still get studio quality audio. Plus, I can switch on the camera, build rapport, or even record that video if I want, and then clip the content for social media right from the platform. Over time, I'm going to start experimenting with their live streaming tools too. You can sign up for Riverside for free and be in great company with tens of thousands of independent creators, marketers, and small business owners, plus customers like The Economist, iHeartRadio, Fox Sports, and Morning Brew, all of whom use Riverside's powerful yet simple and beautiful tool. It is a beautiful platform. Learn more at riverside.fm.